Hi, welcome to the Trauma Thrivers podcast. Delighted to have you with us. I'm Lula Bentz, your host, a psychotherapist, a trauma expert, and a survivor myself. Lovely to have you with us. The Trauma Thrivers podcast is for anybody who has been through any sort of developmental trauma or who has complex PTSD. This podcast aims to help educate, inspire and support those of us that are on a trauma healing journey. We've got stories, steps and various solutions to trauma to help you heal. If you'd like more information or tips or tools or strategies, please go to traumathrivers.com. You can also find this podcast on my YouTube channel, Lula Bent's Trauma Thrivers. If you'd like to join our community of thrivers, please find us on Facebook under Trauma Thrivers. Hello, Trauma Thrivers, and thank you and hello to Miss Kimberly Weeks. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be with you guys. Absolutely. I love working with students from the association that certified us both, um, which is the International Association of Trauma Recovery Coaching led by Bobby Parrish uh, and Sarah Parrish. I am the Director of Association Leadership for the International Association of Trauma Recovery Coaching. I lead the supervisors course in terms of mentoring supervisor candidates who are coming through the association. I also teach in the initial and the advanced classes. I run my own practice working with um, people who've experienced childhood trauma, as well as intimate partner violence with um, narcissistic and psychological abusers. That's my niche. I like, uh, typically I work with women. I do have male clients also, but that is where my sweet spot it is. And it's my sweet spot because I've experienced it both as a child and as a person who got married and married someone with narcissistic personality disorder. I've also experienced lots of interactions with people who are on the spectrum of narcissism, whether that's narcissistic, uh, um, nar- a narcissist, a sociopath. I've even experienced some things with someone who would be technically diagnosed with psychopathy. So wow. um, it's an interesting field. Yeah. Because it's mental because it's mental war, if that makes sense. Psychological war, it is unseen, meaning the impacts can often not be seen outwardly like you would see for a traditional domestic violence situation where people have physical um, outwardly expressions of that physical violence, but it is showing up, it does show up in people's bodies as complex PTSD as panic disorder, as anxiety disorders. And for many people, it develops over time that chronic experience of trauma. Um, They develop health conditions. I developed a health condition. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was 38. Um, I had been having symptoms of multiple sclerosis for about 11 years. I remember the first flare up I had, I thought I was having a nervous breakdown, but it was an actual MS flare up. And so it does have physical impacts, even though you can't see it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very passionate about supporting people who find themselves underneath the spell. And I'll use that term 
yeah. of a person who mentally and psychologically abuses people um, and navigating not only their healing and recovery, but navigating their health impact, navigating the financial impact and navigating many times the legal system when they're leaving a marriage to divorce a person who um, has had them under a, a type of slavery. That's the only way I can describe it. It's a type of slavery. So yeah. Can I ask a personal question? Absolutely. In the, I, I'm, I'm interested to know how you got out of it, Kimberly, and you got into recovery and your own journey into coaching. How, how did that happen? When did you realize what was going on for you? Um, so I was married for 13 years. And when we hit about year, first of all, I knew something was drastically wrong after the first year. I had gotten pregnant with our first child and um, was abandoned pretty much in the house when I came home from the hospital. I mean, like absolutely no support whatsoever. I had mastitis. I was having all kinds of complications from the delivery and the person literally discarded me while he was still coming home every day. I, I had to call parents to come from other, another state to come and support me and the baby because I was having physical impacts. And at that point, I recognized that I was dealing with something inhumane. Yeah, yeah. Um, so fast forward, Again, starting to have nervous breakdown. Clearly the person was doing things that were infidelity. Um, I literally was a single parent as a married person. I took care of everything, bills. I took care of taking care of the household, taking care of the kids, doing everything to, and I was working full-time at the time. I had a complete nervous breakdown um, and lost like functionality and literally had to take a, a year off work and recognized there was something different about me, like something. And I described it as something in my brain broke. Right. That's, I didn't know what, but I knew that there was something mentally different after I had that situation and I could not go back to work. So I became an at-home mom at the time. I was the breadwinner when I got married and and up until the time that I stopped working. Um, So I came home And it just intensified, obviously, when you are dealing with someone who's an abusive person and they isolate you from your ability to make money and they isolate you from friends and family, things intensify. And so about year 12, maybe 11, I recognized the cycle that I started doing research. We all start there where we start Googling. When the world is this, something's wrong. You're trying to explain it to people. You're trying to make sense of it. You don't have the language for it. And um, I started looking at all those things, you know, the, the power and control wheel. I mean, all of those different things. And I recognized what was happening. I recognized the idealization. I recognized the discard and devaluation. And I saw him acting it out. I saw him hoovering with promises of counseling and I'm going to go get help and I have a sexual addiction and all of these different things. And I'm going to go do this and that to get me back into a position. And I just knew I couldn't do it anymore because my functionality, again, I have small children, babies, toddlers, a child in high school. I couldn't function anymore. Like I knew that I was going to die if I stayed in the situation. Yeah. And so um, 
I discovered some extreme infidelity, put it in front of him and got all of the typical gaslighting projection, all of those things, promises, and was like, I'm done. Um, and after that, he was on his best behavior for about six months. During that time, we didn't have any kind of intimacy. And I recognize now that he went to extreme levels of going to a sex addiction programs and going to counseling and going to therapy to woo me back into yeah. having sex with him again so that I could not file divorce based on infidelity. Right. Yeah. And so that happened. And it was like, he was like, there's nothing you can do with it now because, yeah. you know, and I had no idea that that was what was happening. When I realized the calculation and strategy, I was like, that's it. And during that period, we started having incidences during intercourse of violence. So it was all of these kind of moving parts happening at the same time that were completely breaking down my body, my identity, and my sense of ability to function every day. And so from there, I filed for divorce. I had never talked to my parents openly about what I had experienced, but I picked up the phone and called them. And when I called them, one of my parents has been at my house for three years since the day I um, filed for divorce. They literally came and were like a barrier. Wow. God, that's amazing. Bless when I think about what would have happened had I not had my, and they both came for about a year. They literally are retired and came here and helped me. Um, to take care of my children, to get him out of the house, to go through the whole divorce process with them. Thank God. So thank God, because I would not have been able to resist the cycle because I had been in it so long. Otherwise, I really believe that. Um, and so three months after I signed my divorce papers, divorce was the divorce process was hell, financial abuse, parading women, talking about them in front of my children, in front of me in the house while he was still here, all of that stuff. But three months after we signed the divorce papers, I found myself in the hospital during Christmas and I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, lost the ability to walk on the right side of my body, lost the ability to comprehend, like we're having a conversation. I couldn't comprehend based on where the lesions are in my brain, what people were saying and speech. I couldn't form language normally. So it took about a year after that diagnosis for me to stabilize medication, walking, physical therapy. I mean, all of that. And in that year, I found Bobby's program at the International Association of Trauma Recovery Coaching. Because again, we're all master researchers who walk through this situation. And so I started researching about trauma, the impact of trauma, uh, narcissistic abuse, narcissism, psychological abuse, sexual abuse and its impact and found this program and I enrolled in it for me. Yeah. Just so that I could understand what just happened to me. Mm -hmm. And when I got to the end of the program, I was like, oh my gosh, if somebody had been able to explain to me what was happening. Yeah. I could have got out of this a lot sooner with a lot less impact. Yeah. And I felt this like fire, like ignite in me. I really wanted to help people who walked through this path, not have to go through the delay 
the impact long-term and develop all of the health outcomes as a result of being under it for so long, if possible. So I said, okay, I'm going to do this coaching thing. At the time I was working a full-time job because um, I had to go back to work post-divorce. And I started my practice alongside my full-time job and I've just been growing it. I just completed my first year as an entrepreneur full-time. Um, and I'm super excited because this is what I know I'm supposed to do. I know I didn't walk through all those experiences for nothing. Um, and I've got some wisdom as a result. Just a bit, just yeah. a bit. Wow, that's incredible. Even more grateful after hearing all of that for you to be sitting here yeah. as you are today. I mean, it's just brilliant. Um, you mentioned a couple of a couple of words that I think um, I wanted to pick up on. One of them was gaslighting. Yes. Um, now you know I I know a bit about what that is, but there may be people watching. I think it's it's a word that's being used a lot at the moment. And from what I understand, one of the um, symptoms, one of the manifestations yes. um, or of, of narcissistic behavior. Um, so can you talk us through that and maybe some other mm -hmm. signs um, that people might want to be kind of looking out for? And also at some point, maybe girls too, what is narcissism? Mm. Yeah, we can there start. Be, yeah. What yeah is people, there might be some people going, what the hell is narcissism? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and it's, it's a long term. It's kind of a pop culture term right yeah, now. Yeah, massive. Isn't so it? we need to be very um, diligent and intentional in the description of it because there's a continuum. Um, and and the, 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 I'll call it the light side, the healthy side of narcissism is simply self-confidence. If you have a sense of yourself that is based on, you know, goodwill and well-being, you are a person who has healthy self-image and healthy narcissism. Okay. When you get a little bit further down the spectrum, narcissism becomes disordered. And when I say disordered, I mean, it's a person who has an inflated sense of their self-importance. It's excessive interest in your image physically or your image reputationally. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm making it one right yeah, now. Yeah, no, it is, I think. And, and admiration for oneself in an inflated, superior, grandiose fashion. That's what textbook narcissism is. And there are different forms of it. People can be narcissists around their bodies, meaning somatically, where they're very, very, very concerned about their physical image. A person can be an intellectual narcissist where they feel a sense of superiority for their intellect, their um, training, their education, their IQ, all of those different things. A person can be a narcissist around um, you know, just their place in the world in a particular industry. Yeah, they're the best at this there and there's nobody like them that this just grandiosity. Um, a person can be a, 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 what they call a victim narcissist where they believe everybody in the world's out to get them because they're so special. They're so entitled. They're so, you know, um, unique, so different. Um, and it's not on the healthy side of it. Because yeah. you can think and believe that you have a uniqueness about you and appreciate and value how you're wired and how you've been created and not be literally placing yourself above every other human being on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what textbook narcissism, it's a disorder 
yeah. of your self-image. It is a disorder of your sense of importance in the world and in the relationships in your sphere of influence. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the question was asked about gaslighting. Gaslighting yeah. is a probably the chief technique that narcissistic people use to protect what they call the false self or their um, insecurity about the reality of what's really in them, their shadow sides of them. Okay. And so gaslighting is when a person will distort language, facts, events, and your thoughts in order to gain a sense of dominance and control over what your choices are and what you, how you see the events that take place between them. They literally come and rewrite the story so that they become the person who is the victim and that somebody's done something to them, even in the face of facts, proof, receipts, all of those things. Wow. They gaslight, and it comes from a movie, I think it's from 1944, called Gaslight, where this husband terrorized his wife and would move things around the house, say things and just literally say, I don't know what you're, you, something's wrong with your thinking because I've never said anything like that to, he literally would call her memory into question. And it's, I call it, it's like a kind of mind control and voodoo. It's programming you to doubt your sense or read of reality. And it's insidious. For many people, gaslighting becomes what they call cognitive dissonance. It's where you can't tell what's real and what's not. You have two opposing beliefs about the same thing. So for instance, the person may have just bought you this amazing new car for Christmas and then you found them sleeping with prostitutes in your bed at your house during the middle of the day. And there are two duplicitous images of who the person is in your life and your mind cannot reconcile. Yeah. It's fragmented. And so when a person has cognitive dissonance or an inability to grasp reality because they've been presented with two different images of the same thing, they can't make choices. You wow. can't discern yeah. what's real and what's fake. Well, no. Yeah. 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 So other than the gaslighting, what are the other kind of symptoms that that to watch out for that they do? What other kind of behaviors happen with a narcissist? There are many, but in the DSM-5, which, you know, uh, in the United States is the criteria for diagnosing someone with narcissistic personality disorder, yeah. they have, and we talked about this, a high sense of entitlement. Yeah. They're entitled to do anything they want to whomever they want, whenever they want. There is a grandiosity. They feel like they're the most important person when they walk into a space and that as a result, they deserve special treatment. Um, there is the presence of, and I wrote all of these down, um, they are very exploitative. Yeah. When they meet a person, they're sizing you up and casing you like a robber would a house yeah. to determine what resources are available for them to take and extract and dupe you out of. Mm. 
one of the primary things you're looking for with a narcissistic personality disordered person is a complete lack of empathy or connection to their impact on other people. They simply haven't developed in their brain parts of their brain that help them to be able to step into another person's shoes and have any level of emotional awareness or intelligence about what their behavior does to other people. It's cruel, devastating. I call it wicked. It's a wickedness about their complete lack of emotion and, and empathy. Can I ask a question though? Because some of them that I know or I've met or been involved with come across as extremely charming oh yeah come across as if they do care and they've got masses of empathy but actually it's quite fake but they they're good at putting it on they've studied people they've studied emotion and they know how to mimic it okay Mm. I call it it's like a loophole it's like an emotional loophole and so they play the role of charisma, of empathy, of connection. They're literally parroting and mimicking behavior and mirroring you. Typically a person with narcissistic personality disorder is looking for a very highly empathetic person. And so they literally take what you give them and give it back to you. Here's the difference. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Lou. Have you ever hugged a person or had someone compliment you and it felt absolutely hollow. Yes. Mm. Absolutely empty. Yes. Mm. The action is there, but energetically, there's nothing there at all. Mm. Oh, yeah. And so what you're looking for, anybody who is looking at what influences they have around you, what relationships, when you're with that person, do you have a sense of real do you have a sense of something's just not quite something's just a little bit off that thing that was just said sounded like a compliment but mm, something about it felt like I was just verbally jabbed (laughs) but the words are there yeah the words sound kind if you wrote them out it would sound like the person was doing something very altruistic to you or very amiable but when you're with them, the energy doesn't back it up. It's just like, it's a cognitive distortion. It's just, it doesn't back it up. So that low empathy, they have a preoccupation with fantasy. Like they don't want to be a part of what's really in the world, which is ups, downs, negatives, positives, good days, bad days. They want like a movie, like the, the they want a, a partner or a parent that's perfect. And they're looking to create and recreate that over and over again with all of their interactions. They literally fantasize about high levels of success, high levels of riches and wealth, beauty, um, you know, just all of the things that would literally be a part. It's kind of like what you're, what we're dealing with, with the metaverse right now. We're in a false, not real world with not real people having interactions. They traffic in that fantasy and they know how to recreate it. And once humanity creeps in, in relationships and you're actually dealing with a real person and it's no longer a fantasy, they just discard that person and go on and recreate it again. I've heard it said this way. The person will say something like, 
I love being in love. Notice they didn't say, I love getting to know a person and, and getting to connect with the person and falling in love with a person. They didn't say that. They said, I love being in love, which is the infatuation phase, which is the idealization phase of narcissistic abuse. They're very arrogant, very haughty. They may covertly appear humble, but their words and actions display a rage and entitlement, a grandiosity, and a sense that they direct everything and everyone around them and they have a right to do so. Wow. Um, so five or more of those characteristics, having an eliteness to themselves, they deserve things that people, other people don't deserve just because they're them. Entitlement, arrogance, jealousy with other people, no empathy, excessive admiration. They constantly need admiration and words that prop them up and they're the best and they're amazing. They can't handle criticism at all. Um, feeling like they're unique and special preoccupied with like fantasy, success, power, fame, all of those things. If you got five or more of those present, then the person can technically be diagnosed with, with narcissistic personality disorder. Wow. Um, you mentioned in there, Kimberly, and I, you know, that I think, you know, everything you've just said, it's, it's like a lot to, to kind of process. And Absolutely. You know, I think that it's, you know, just raising awareness in this way is, is so important. Um, and you, one of the things that you mentioned in there is that a narcissist will generally try to attract somebody that is very empathetic. Yes. Now, how I, a lot of clients that I see have ended up with narcissists in their lives sure. so it's kind of why why is that why as traumatized people mm. do we are we more likely to attract a narcissist we're more and let me put it this way I say this to clients all the time I don't believe we're more likely to attract narcissists mm -hmm. I think there's narcissists sociopaths and psychopaths you're going to come across those every day. People come across people who have all of these characteristics here and there throughout their life. What is more likely for trauma survivors is that they allow that person to stay in their lives or stay in their lives too long. Yeah. Where a person who has been in a family system where they saw love and respect and um, equality, dignity, and all of those things. If you didn't grow up with a model of that and or you grew up with a narcissist, whether mother or father, you literally got a template that this is what is normal in terms of interaction between intimate partners. Mm -hmm. And so when the person presents these behaviors to you, you literally gravitate towards what's a familiar. Mm -hmm. You choose out of that normalcy where someone else would go, I know exactly what you're doing and you're not doing that with me, set boundaries, cut them off and they have no access to them. We continue to give access to people, giving chances because there's a child in us that wants a different outcome mm. in our adulthood than what we experienced in our childhood. And we're literally, it's like we're trying to complete the stress cycle with another partner who has the same characteristics. We want a different end to the story. 
And so we allow people who have these traits to remain in our lives longer than they should. Mm. Um, We give them room and access because we have a desire for that connection. And again, they've created this fantasy Mm. and the charisma is there. And they've love bombed and done all this amazing stuff to create this world where we believe we're going to get that different end Mm -hmm. until we have gotten too far down the line and the devaluation stage of narcissistic abuse begins. And again, that's normal. Mm. And I I think, I think, you know, as you're speaking, what, what's coming up for me, Kimberly is, you know, due to trauma, you know, the, the, the limiting beliefs that we have about ourselves, you know, the, the not good enough, you know, I'll be rejected, I'll be abandoned. So perhaps, you know, by the time it gets to the point where the behavior is recognized anyway, if we have trauma, you know, those beliefs about ourselves and and that, you know, well, this is, this is what I deserve almost. Yes. Um, Those, those come, can come into play. Yes. Um, And I have to earn and I have to prove and I have to perform for this person to change the way they're treating me because I have a belief about me that I don't deserve to be treated differently because this is what I saw growing up. But it's a trauma repetition, isn't it? Again, of that not okay child that is attempting to please the parent. And, you know, maybe this time it will be different. But of course, yes. it never is with a narcissist. It, it, is, it is literally like the gazelle, the small little gazelle in the wild that gets taken out by a lioness. Yeah. We're literally like prey. And so the way that we have to um, learn new beliefs develop and unlearn old belief patterns and develop new belief patterns is to get in environments where we're able to literally have experiential knowledge of different ways of people functioning relationally. Yeah. Because we don't have a framework for it. We don't have language for it. We don't, I say it's like Duolingo in a different way. All the learning systems, the Rosetta Stone. If I didn't grow up in a house speaking respect, if I didn't grow up in a house where honor was spoken, like Spanish or Korean or Mandarin. I don't know how to speak it. I don't know how to interpret it from another. So we have to get into some environments that allow for us to have a different experience, both somatically and language-wise of what it looks like for someone to treat you with respect to treat you with love. And then when those younger parts of us come out, because they will, Mm -hmm. we have to learn how to support and resource for them as our adult selves so that we're not looking for someone else to step in and rescue that younger part. We're the ones as adults who step in and work with and support and um, meet the needs of the younger parts of us that are still unhealed. Totally yeah. agree with you. What, what do we say, Kimberly, when we hear this? But aren't narcissists also traumatized people? What do we say? I would say that that's correct. Typically, people who develop narcissistic personality disorder were traumatized in their very early childhood development, first five to seven years. 
-hmm. They grew up in an environment where they were groomed to behave this way and or experience extreme levels of neglect, abandonment, or rejection and developed a mask or a dual person in order to survive those situations. Mm -hmm. We would also say that's still not an excuse for them to use those experiences to harm other people. It doesn't mean that you can't have empathy. Again, we're talking about people who are very empathetic that come into contact with people who prey on other people and distort their reality. doesn't mean you can't have empathy for it, but it doesn't also mean you have to take it on. Yeah. Yeah. It's not your responsibility to fix. And so there's a part of our inner child experiences that we either had to step into our parental relationships to be a go-between, to be a fixer, to be a stabilizer of the environment that is showing up again in these adult relationships Mm -hmm. where we then see these characteristics that remind us of our childhood and we assume the position Mm -hmm. of fixing, assume the position of pleasing and proving and performing in order to overcome that abuse. Because as a child, we thought if we just act good enough, if we just get grades that are good enough, we just do enough things and keep the house clean and don't make anybody upset, then all of this is going to stop. That limiting belief has to be dealt with in our adulthood and extracted. I mean, unlearned. I don't know of any other way to say it. Uh, We have to divorce it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm out of agreement. I, I like the word dissolve. If that dissolve. Helps. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, it's true. And that thought, Melanie, actually is what keeps energetically the victim of these experiences in the situation longer than possible. It's that heart that wants to help the other person, even at your own expense. We call that a trauma bond. Yeah. Um, And so you start bonding with that person over trying to overcome something that isn't yours to overcome. And in the process, you are being annihilated. Your identity is being destroyed. Your health is being corrupted. Your, Your finances are being literally swindled away from you. Um, and your support, any support that you have for yourself is, is being annihilated by the person. I'm using very strong terms because there is no other way to say what the ex- experience is. Yeah. Would you say, would you ever use the word just out of interest? I've got two questions now. Would you ever use the word codependency? Yes. Okay. Codependency is I'm going to, from that childhood experience, take care of your needs and what you desire so that I can be safe. Yeah. Many many survivors of childhood trauma develop those codependent patterns with their parents and carry them into adulthood. In many ways, it's not just intimate partners. It's how they respond to their own children. It's how they respond in business or in the marketplace. They start taking care of other people because their nervous system is registering cues of danger. And the only way I know how to deal with cues of danger is to take care of everybody else and make sure everybody else is happy and pleased. And then I can then be okay. And so there's a disconnect between my own needs, desires and wants completely. Yeah. Like there is no self 
there that got developed out of that childhood experience. Yeah, yeah. And the and, second and question? Lastly, I was going to ask you, well, the last question for me, I'm, I'm sure Mel might have another one, is you know that we're all great believers in all, all, of, all of trauma survivors being able to heal that we can all do our work and we can all dissolve our trauma and change our beliefs and we can get our systems to a regulated kind of nervous system space. Right. Do we also believe that for a narcissist or somebody with MPD? It's a really good question. I am going to, and I've said this many times, the key to a person who has developed or not developed certain things in their actual brain yeah. is willingness. Yeah. It's the will. If a person does not believe that anything is their fault, yeah. if they don't believe anything is wrong with them, if their false self is so covered in those beliefs that it's everybody else's problem and not theirs. They don't have a willingness to be able to go get support so that they can become more aware of themselves, what's happening in them and their impact. Even as trauma survivors, as people who are very compassionate and empathetic, you got to come with a willingness to sit with the reality of what's happening on the inside of you and stop looking at the other people in the environment and start looking at and bringing back your sense of your own agency as to what choices you're making, where they're coming from and what you can do differently moving forward. Both of those people, whether it's the person who has been victimized or the person who is a perpetrator have to have that. There are plenty of people who have been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder who start going to counseling and therapy because of fear of loss. Yeah. Yeah. And they develop a willingness. Yeah. I know several people, especially males who have been womanizers, who literally say it's like AA. Every day I have to wake up with an intentionality that this part of me that can use and exploit people, I'm going to choose not to operate from that natural innate natural meaning groomed or taught or socialized way of relating to other human beings. And it all comes back to willingness. And so apart from willingness, apart from yielding to the reality of what's happening in them, a narcissist will not change. They will actually deepen, harden and worsen in their treatment of other people, especially as they age. Um, because it all is image and we live in cultures where aging is not something that is celebrated at all. And it's looked at as a weakness. And so they actually become an end up at the end of their lives, typically very, very alone, very, very, um, void of any real connection and relationship. Um, and with lots and lots and lots of consequences from years of, violence against other people yeah yeah it's a great question and that question is what keeps people in the abuse cycle yeah there's a hope that just like you are willing to go to therapy and you are willing to go sit with a coach and you're yeah. willing to go do all the research and read the books and go to the seminars that that other person has the capacity to do the same 
Yeah. And on the spectrum, when you get into so, uh, not sociopathy, psychopathy, there's yeah. literally an inability, that person genetically inherited traits that they don't have capacity for certain things. A sociopath has been groomed and socialized to behave in exploitative ways in order for them to try to hide their false self and keep themselves safe. Um, so, so it's an interesting question because capacity and willingness is so unique to each individual person. Yeah. yeah. But as a rule of thumb, if someone comes to sit across the table with me um, for a session and they're telling me their story, I'm going to tell them they need to get out. They need to do it as quickly and safely as possible. Yeah. Because the only thing they have the authority to do and control is themselves, their own choices, and their own will, what they're willing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's a heavy topic. When you start talking about narc, this is such a, it, it is almost like a matrix. It is, a, it is an alternate universe that people are actually engaged in and to detangle, decode and, and to get out of it, get in, you know, unentangled. I don't know if that's the right word. No, unentangled it's, from yeah, it yeah. Is, is not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of time to deal with the impact of this. And many of my clients have to literally go no contact with parents, with adult children, with relatives who are now serving as flying, what we call flying monkeys or people who are assisting their abuser and continuing their abuse by proxy yeah. um, and intimate partners and marriages. And they, they have to literally cut them off from their life. Like you would take a leech off of your body. So it no longer sucks your blood and sucks the life out of you. Just a couple of interesting comments here from, from Sharon. Um, she says that doesn't give children much hope for children with conduct disorder. We have to work with the children. She, and then she says, not enough money is put into children showing symptoms probably because families would have to be investigated. Yes, because it's, it's not the child, it's the system. Mm -hmm. They are in a family system that is a narcissistic family system. And so whenever you see behaviors presented from a child, what you have to do is go back into their family of origin and the dynamics of that system to determine how that child is being developed, their brain is developing to, to display those behaviors. Typically, when you talk about conduct, um, oppositional behavior disorder or conduct disorders, you're talking about dysregulation. Yeah, of course you are. You're talking about a lack of nervous system or, or a window of tolerance or capacity that's very, very narrow. Yeah. And so all of that is shaped by the environment that the child is being raised in. Mm. So in order for a child to get support, you got to go into the entire system to start to look at how that system is shaping and developing that child's nervous system. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely, you know, couldn't agree more with with Sharon. You know, if if only intervention, early intervention, were easier, I think we right. would um, we would be, you know, and there was a lot more, you know, trauma informed schools and and that kind of thing. You know, I think you know society would would look very different in years to come. And let's just yeah. um, send a little prayer up that 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 may be the case at some. Well, point. we're a part of that. 
Yeah. We're a part yeah. of that. That's one of the reasons that I love doing this work because we are part of it. And it starts in your own house, it's with like your own children, with your own friends, with your own partners, with your own parents, and you starting to literally model yeah. regulation, model language that speaks truth, honor, respect, um, boundaries, um, respect for those boundaries. All of that has ripple effects mm -hmm. for everyone around you. And so that's the, the starting point. And then for those of us who take this on as a career, then we're stepping into other family systems to support the same. Yeah, I hear you with that. And I also want to honor anybody that's watching us tonight or listening to this, because I also think that if you're listening to this and you're tuning in tonight, you're changing the dynamics, you're becoming educated, you're taking a leap of faith and putting yourself out there. And that's bloody brave. It is. It's, it's one like, of the most courageous breakers, as I call them. Yeah, yes. It really is. And I, there is nothing, as, as Lou just said, as far as I'm concerned, and, and knowing because I'm one of them, there is nothing braver or more courageous or actually more freeing mm. as well than being a cycle breaker yes and it is hard meaning you're going against all your programming yeah you're going against and having to look at the ways that narcissistic family system develop patterns mm. and beliefs in you about how you relate to other human beings and where some tendencies of that narcissism have shown up for you in your adulthood or in your present relationships. And so it's brave because it's not a finger point. Mm -hmm. It's an inside examination. Yeah. And then those things have to be owned, taken responsibility for, and the work has to be done to make those adjustments and changes and new beliefs brought in and all of those things before you can even go and take a look back with your parents um, or your siblings or any of those things. It starts here because that's what the authority, that's the authority and agency we have. We have choice and many choices we have to make changes um, within ourselves first. Yeah, absolutely. There's one last question that I'd like to ask you, Kimberly. Sure. And it, the reason I want to ask this is it's something that I hear a lot, but I see quite a bit in the trauma thrivers group as well. Mm -hmm. And that is, what if you kind of don't have a choice but to have a narcissist in your life? So, you know, if you have left a marriage, but the children still want to have contact with, with the narcissist or, you know, whatever, or if it's a, an in-law or whatever, where there's kind of you're, you're in this situation where you can distance yourself as much as you possibly can, but they're still in your sphere. Right. What sort of tips resources advice guidance would you give somebody that's in that sort of situation well I'm living it so I can give you the tips and I actually wrote a little ebook called the little black book of no contact um the 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 especially if you're parenting you don't co-parent with a narcissist that it, um that says there's cooperation mm -hmm. What, what actually takes place is parallel parenting where each parent parents the child and this is what's available in terms of boundaries 
when they're on their own parenting time and there's there's very little coordination because that coordination is used to hoover and to pull you back into an energetic tie with that other parent. You support that other parent having a relationship with their children, but you just don't become a part of that relationship to the degree that you can. Of course, if you have infants, toddlers, that's gonna be a completely different dynamic. But the goal is to parent separately from that other person to the degree that you can. Um, if you have to have a relationship, meaning it's a parent, it has to be with boundaries. Mm -hmm. So that person can talk to you no more than 10 minutes, once a month, that person, um, there are certain conversations that you refuse to, you know, have conversation with, but many of my clients actually have to choose no contact because of the degree of damage that has taken place either with an intimate partner, um, or a parent or a sibling or someone that they work with, they've had to leave jobs. Um, the way that I parallel parent, I literally do not communicate with my ex-husband unless it's absolutely necessary. And I only do it in writing. Yeah. I don't I about to have conversations that. with yeah. them where I hear the sound of their voice. I don't interface with them face to face in any way. Yeah. Everything is in writing. So there's a trail of that communication that cannot be distorted. Yeah. Um, and over time, that person will adjust to that being the way that you're going to communicate. Unfortunately, sometimes they'll pull kids into that to be a go-between of communication um, or tell them things that are not true or accurate and then have there be some kind of supply of attention coming between you and the child and that disruption. So there's a lot of different things that you can do, but it's absolutely necessary in order for you to heal for those boundaries to be put in place. Because as long as you're interfacing with that person who has been an abuser psychologically, they're literally dropping the little poison in you every single time you have an interaction and they have access to your heart, your emotions and your mental state, which then they can continue to abuse you um, from, from, from a distance with their decisions. So I'm a very big proponent of no contact. I've gone no contact several times in my life. Um, and it does accelerate healing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the hook stops being put back in all the time, which is yes, the, the scab stops getting torn. Yeah. Up, the stitches start being, you know, you know, ripped apart where yeah. you're continually not being able to actually go through the process of mentally and your nervous system repairing itself in an environment of safety because you're still in fight or flight. You're still in that sister sympathetic nervous state where you're constantly um, adrenalized you know, and yeah, you're constantly hyper, hyper vigilant and yeah. looking for the next thing that that person's going to do. And so they're still in your head. There's two types of no contact. There's external no contact, which is what I just described. And there's internal no contact. Internal is your thoughts how much space you let them take up in your mind, how much you think about them and ruminate and turn over all the events that have taken place. And that is two phases. The first phase is the external. And, the, and when you get outside of their voodoo, their spell, for lack of better term, you can have the mental clarity to start then removing them mentally from your everyday thinking. 
Amazing. God. It's a lot. It's a lot. And yet you can heal from narcissistic abuse. Yeah. You can recover fully. And when you do, you'll be incredibly wise. You'll have a resilience and a capacity and you'll have very little tolerance for the behavior that you experience. It doesn't mean you won't fall into it again, especially if you were raised in an environment where that was normal, but it's, it's, it's a constant forward movement, even if it's, it's like staggered yeah. back and yeah. forth. Yeah. Yeah. With each interaction you have with someone who displays these characteristics, you will begin to develop the muscle memory of no and boundaries. Yeah. Love it. Love it. And thank you. Loved you. You're just brilliant. Isn't she now? She's just awesome. Thank you. Really, really, honestly. I hope that was really helpful for the group. I'm sure it was. There are some absolute gems in there. And um, yeah, your story is really touching and, and as well as your words. And I'm just so grateful for you. Thank you. Thank touching, you so much. Touching and inspiring. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to say other than? But they can also find me on my website at the narcissisticabusecoach.com. Um, as I said, I'm an instructor and the director of association leadership at the International Association of Trauma Recovery Coaching. That website is IAOTRC.com. If you're looking to have um, either training for you to become a coach and or just wanting the information about trauma for yourself to support your own healing process, um, which is what I started out doing and then got passionate about it. Um, but the final thing I would love to say and leave as just a departing, a, a parting thought is that this experience does not define you. Mm. The experience in your childhood with a narcissistic parents does not define you. Mm. What you choose to believe about yourself and the world and your capacity. One of the things that, that um, narcissists try to take from you is your identity and your capacity to love and trust and believe. And what I want to offer is those things, no matter what you've experienced, are in you and they couldn't take it from you. If they could, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. And so that part of you, that's, that's the core, we call it the core self is still intact. And it's just a matter. It's kind of like going to a well for some water. You just need some supports to drop your bucket in and draw it out. And that's what coaches do. That's what therapists do. That's what people that have different mental health modalities do. And there are, are there tribes of people that are here to support you in that healing process and you can do it. You can absolutely do it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. I hope it helped you in some way. And I really hope to see you back here soon. If you have anything to share on today's experience or podcast, please nip over to the YouTube channel or the Facebook group Trauma Thrivers and let us know there.